Hey all, welcome back to Building the Ballot. Uh, this is the early baseball era committee that we're talking about. And episode three is about the Negro Major Leagues. And also we're going to include some of the, the Proto-Negro Leagues. So the even going back maybe to the 19th century, very early 20th century to when the uh, the Negro National League was was founded in 1920. And we have the perfect person on to chat about this. We have Scott Simkis. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. Thanks for having me on, Adam, man. I appreciate it. Oh gosh, where to start with uh, introducing Scott? So he his work was instrumental in getting the the Seamheads Negro League database built. I'm going to have him talk plenty about that. Uh, he was the author of Outsider Baseball. He was a consultant on the Stratomatic Negro League All Stars set. Uh, Scott, do you mind just building on that and kind of giving an introduction of who you are and what you do? Sure, I think you've covered the big points. I mean, uh, you know, lifelong uh, Chicago uh, Cubs fan, fourth generation Cubs fan. Uh, so grew up in a family that's really, really interested in baseball. Uh, you know, the first game that my dad went to as a boy was Jackie Robinson's debut in Wrigley Field in 47. And so these are the, you know, the kind of the stories and the things we talked about um, growing up. Uh, my grandfather played against the Cuban Stars. He was a uh, semi-pro ball player in Chicago in the 30s and so um, uh, heard stories from him and became really interested in uh, really all of baseball history and the Negro Leagues in particular uh, was always an area of fascination because of the lack of data. I'm kind of a you know was a stat kid used to keep the batting averages in Little League and all that stuff and so I was always hungry to, to learn more and, you know, kind of fast forward to when I was in my 30s, I, I was uh, lucky enough to be a consultant to the Stratomatic Game Company with their first Negro League set, which came out in 2010. Uh, that led to um, an online history easing that I used to publish for three and a half years. And it was little, like this little cult uh, publication that Gary Ashwell and uh, Kevin Johnson and Mike Lynch from the Seamheads, and we all kind of put this thing together and put it out weekly for about three and a half years. And we met a bunch of people, John Thorne and uh, Gary Gillette and uh, John Hallway, um, uh, met a bunch of people through that. And that led to the book in 2014. And all along I've been uh, collecting box scores and building stats uh, that we uh, at first shared on the Seamhead site, I rebuilt the 1933 season. So when you look at the stats at uh, Baseball Reference, uh, 33 is my work, uh, 1943 is my work. Um, I rebuilt a big chunk of 1922, but in the East. So uh, those stats are not listed as major league yet. And then I've just found various games and series uh, really throughout uh, you know, the Proto-Negro Leagues through in 1948 and it just it continues to kind of be an obsession for me we have found new games just in the last couple of days which at some point will be submitted to sports reference and, and probably become part of the official record so um just a baseball nut and i love this stuff and uh it's just opened a bunch of interesting doors and i've met a bunch of interesting people and um, it's been a, it's been a pretty cool path, man, just to kind of love baseball, but it's not my job. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I work, uh, I work, uh, in the travel limousine industry and I, I, you know, that's to support my baseball addiction. So that's my story, man. Oh, excellent. It's a wonderful story. I love hearing about 
the the box score collection. If you could just kind of talk us through what the process actually looks like in getting a game into the Seamheads Nuga League database, whether it's uh, whether it's one that was found in person or something just that was online, I just love hearing about it. Yeah, so uh, you know it's become much easier in the last ten years because of uh, the internet and the you know the uh, digitizing of historical papers. But initially, when I started, it was all microfilm. Uh, you would travel to the Chicago Public Library, uh, and then got into and learned about the interlibrary loan, where I would have reels of microfilm shipped into my local library here in the suburbs, from Memphis and from Columbus and from Newark. And so you're talking about going to the library for a couple of hours and sitting there scrolling through um, these old newspapers, looking for game stories and box scores and clues. Um, you know, Gary Ashwell and I have talked about it. It's, it's probably two man hours to process one box score. And that might be conservative. So when you think about the thousands of of uh, games, I mean, like 1943 was probably a, close to a three-year project for me just for that one season. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there can be issues with box scores. You might be missing the at-bats uh, in certain newspapers. They just omitted them for whatever reason. And so what you need to do is go look for uh, different accounts of that game. A, a, a different newspaper might actually have the at-bats and so you can fill in gaps like that. Uh, um, you got to figure out how to calculate uh, uh, earned runs in certain instances. So you're sort of reading through the game stories and seeing how the action unfolded. Uh, you know, the box scores, uh, most of them are really good, um, but they're not the same level of detail that you would have for the major leagues. The biggest issue, of course, is that there wasn't one centralized source for box scores, you didn't have a sporting news for Negro League Baseball covering the games, uh, let alone every paper across the country printing box scores for most of the games in the, in the white major leagues. Often there might be just one source for a game and it might be in Erie, Pennsylvania or a small town like Canton, Illinois. They, they played in so many different places that it's, <laughs> that's the challenge. When they played in a big city, Philadelphia or Chicago or New York, you'd often have multiple uh, sources to find those games, but uh, the majority of their games are played in uh, neutral sites, small towns and big cities alike, and uh, finding them can be like a needle in a haystack because they might not be mentioned in the stories in the black uh, press uh, or even the white papers. So you, you over the period of time, you start to learn about the travel patterns for the teams. We, you know, we know that uh, if they played a doubleheader in Cleveland uh, in the 1940s, very often they would swing up to Niagara Falls and then go into Hamilton, uh, I think Ontario it is, and, and play games up there. And, and usually they would stop in, say, Erie, Pennsylvania. And then they would come back down and go through Meadville, Pennsylvania, a smaller city, and play official Negro League games there. So... You're trying to learn about the travel patterns, trying to figure out which cities they may have stopped in. And, uh, and then you have to go to those towns and uh, try to find the box scores. So a lot of times I was reaching out to researchers, historical societies and librarians across the country to see if they could uh, maybe check three dates and see if a game was played there. Or if I know a game was played there, 
uh, see if a box score had been printed in the local paper, which was often the case. You know, the white papers, uh, you know, usually the games were promoted by a white business person. So they would have a lot of coverage leading up to the games. And usually uh, there would be some sort of post game the next day. They would have some coverage and uh, very often a box score. So that's the process, man. It's just, you know, it's different than the major leagues where you had official records that are in Cooperstown now and you had uh, the sporting news and you had guidebooks that were printed and uh, major newspapers covering all the games. With a Negro League game, you literally might have one paper that had covered a, you know, a game between the Monarchs and the Memphis Red Sox or whatever. So um, it's hard. It's hard yeah. work. And I didn't realize that until I got into it. Yeah, and if the, I, I had no idea like about how everything was run in the Negro Leagues until recently. And like even the biggest thing I've learned through my work with Baseball Reference is you cannot try to fit the Negro Leagues into a AL and NL sized, you know, hole. It, it was just a totally different thing. Like you said, these league games, they weren't played in just one stadium. They were played all over the place. Uh, there were barnstorming games mixed in. It was just a completely different thing. It totally like... It was absolutely a major league, but it was not the same. It was different. And, and it can be both those things. Uh, I would agree. I would agree that, I mean, they had to run their business a little bit different way. They had to make money to survive. Um, and then, you know, the country was different. You, you had these white semi-pro teams uh, that could draw eight or 10,000 people to their games, especially when they had a Negro League opponent. And I became curious about that stuff with the Brooklyn Bushwicks and the Chicago Logan Squares. These are white teams that would get 10,000 people out for a doubleheader on the weekend. And the, they often had former or future major leaguers on their roster. And uh, they, were, they were pretty good ball clubs. Um, so it was just a different world. The, you, you know, as an entertainment vehicle, you didn't have television. You didn't have radio. People would uh, you know, go down the street and go watch a ball game with the team coming in uh, from the road. Um, so the Negro League teams were without question the big draw in that world, that parallel world that I call outsider baseball, which is just independent. You know, you had organized baseball, which was the major leagues and the minors. And then you had, like I said, outsider baseball, which was the Negro Leagues, uh, independent um, white minor leagues. You had uh, factory teams, military clubs, semi-pro. And you also had white barnstorming teams like the House of David, the Atlanta Chain Gang. Uh, it's like something out of a Philip Roth novel. It's just, it's bizarre. Tokyo, uh, the Japanese All-Stars toured here uh, extensively in the 30s. And they all played each other. I mean, it's really, really interesting if you kind of step back. But the highest level of play, without question, was when the Negro Leagues played against um, uh, their own. And, um, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. Uh, you know, the, the level of talent was uh, extremely high. And um, for the first time, we have a data set that's sort of usable. And then people that like to get into analytics um, we actually have some data that's credible and balanced for the most part, and um, it's pretty exciting to be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. One more thing I want to touch on before we, I promise we'll get into the Hall of Fame. Um, <clears throat> I was uh, tweeting about Neil Robinson uh, the other day, and it, it was something that I, I found about like how 
I think only like 21% of his games had box scores for that. So that's something that we'll have to consider as we're, we're working through some stats here is so Neil Robinson played the bulk of his career in Memphis. And you were saying that Memphis is like one of the cities that we have the lowest number of box scores found. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the 1940s in particular, uh, especially with uh, the Negro American league, which was primarily in the Midwest, um, we still have some work to do. Um, matter of fact, the Memphis Commercial Appeal, the main white daily paper, uh, just came online on one of the platforms, I think Genealogy Bank. And uh, we took a quick spot check through there. They covered the games, but not a lot of box scores in the 40s, which is frustrating. So they're sort of under, uh, definitely underrepresented in the database. Um, so, you know, you got to kind of work with uh, the career stats as best as you can and, and try to tease out how good these guys were. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's still, we're going to, we've found a bunch of stuff, even literally within the last six, seven weeks, that's going to end up uh, being added to the database. And most of it's from the 1940s. So people are going to see that data set uh, become a little bit more robust and uh, given a little bit of time here. It's on the way. Excellent. So yeah, next, I think it might make sense to just kind of go through a little timeline of what, of Negro Leaguers and the Hall of Fame and what that actually looked like. So there were no Negro League players into the, in the Hall of Fame until the 1970s. And a lot of people point to Ted Williams' induction speech as kind of kicking off that process. So uh, during his induction speech, he said that he would love to see players like Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson get in. And then five years later, it was Paige that was elected um, via the Committee on Negro League Baseball. Uh, con- Committee on Negro Baseball Leagues is is what existed from 1971 to 77. So in 71, they put in Page. In 72, it was Gibson and Leonard. 73, it was Monty Irvin, who I believe um, was a a chair of that group. Right, right. Yeah, 1974 was Cool Papa Bell. Then 75 was Judy Johnson. 76 was Oscar Charleston. 77 was Martin DeHigo and, and John Henry Lloyd. And then that committee kind of said, we're done. We've, we've, We've named nine players. I think it happened to be like one player at each position, although I don't right. know how you pick a position for Martin DeHigo. But uh, at that point, they said that they were done. And, and you know, obviously they really weren't. There were far more than nine uh, Hall of Fame caliber players in the Negro Leagues. So then they turned it over to the Veterans Committee. And unfortunately, the Veterans Committee handled Negro League inductions from 78 to 94 and only put in two more. Uh, inductees. And that was Rube Foster in 1981 and Ray Dandridge in 1987. Right. That's correct. Yeah. And it was very slow. So then they kind of took that responsibility away from them and put in the, I guess it was kind of a quota system. And I think it was Buck O'Neill who was involved in this process here during this era from 95 to 2001, where we got Leon Day, Willie Foster, Willie Wells, Finally, Bullet Rogan, Smokey Joe Williams, Turkey Stearns, and Hilton Smith. Right, right. And at that point, the special committee on the Negro Leagues uh, started to form. Uh, I guess that was from a $250,000 grant from Major League Baseball in 2001. Can you tell us a little bit about this special committee and the work they did between 2001 and 2006 when the, the larger induction happened? Yeah, I mean, I can talk a little bit about it. I, number one, I was not part of that group, but I'm friends with a lot of people uh, now who were. 
And so they uh, they were given a, a small chunk of money and uh, several years to start to compile the stats. And some of that work uh, is actually the foundation of what we're finding online. Now, you know, what we've done over the past 10 years is uh, um, pretty significant. We cleaned up a lot of issues they had with the data. We've added a lot of uh, material. But they had a, a group of quote unquote Negro League experts assembled and um, they had a pretty big list of, uh, I can't remember how many people they had initially at 90, 90 plus, I wanna say. 94 on the pre 90, Yeah, and so then they winnowed that down to uh, a final ballot and then they, uh, gosh, Adam, how many did they elect in 2006? Was it uh, like 15? I happen to have the numbers here. So 94 on the pre-ballot, 39 on the final ballot, and 17 ended up being inducted. 17, that's right. And then they said at the time that hey, we we are done. We have elected everybody who is ever going to be uh, in Cooperstown from the Negro Leagues, and that was going to be it. I can't believe they would have said that at the time, but they did, right? Right. I, I, I can't believe they would have said that, too, because obviously we're not done with any era in white baseball. So to, to say that is is pretty shocking. And I mean, to this day, nobody else has gotten in the Hall of Fame from the Negro League since 2006. So right. I guess beyond the fact that they said that, <laughs> that that was the plan, why do you think that is that it's taken 15 years now for these candidates to be considered again? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, you, you know, uh, of course, Buck O'Neill, who uh, uh, missed out in the 2006, which is probably a, uh, an egregious error, and I'm sure we'll talk about him later. So he passes away. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, what I do know about the Hall of Fame, I, you know, I spoke there back in 2014 at the Fred uh, is that you need individuals that are advocating for people. And I don't know that anybody was advocating for it. And certainly nobody from my group, and my group would be the Seam Heads guys headed by Gary Ashwell and Kevin Johnson. And we were uh, trying to just rebuild the history. Uh, we, we, it was never our intention when we were compiling the stats was we wanted to be able to share something publicly uh, and we wanted to just rebuild the history. Our mission was not a to get it designated as a, a major league, which is now the case, uh, nor b were we actually advocating for any additional people uh, to get into the Hall of Fame. That wasn't our mission. That's not to say that each one of us individually thinks, "Oh, this guy should be in the Hall of Fame and this guy should be." Uh, but our our mission was just rebuilding the history. So if you don't have somebody pushing for it, um, it kind of falls by the wayside. You have to, you know, in the early days, it was uh, Ted Williams and then John Holloway and uh, uh, Dick Clark and uh, uh, Larry Lester was a big, you know, really he was the leader of the 2006 um, election. So, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think it's up to individuals that have that ambition and want to make something happen and why it's reemerging now is, I think it's great, but I, I don't know I don't know when they started talking about it. You know, what, what is the, maybe you could clarify that for me. When did they start discussing this committee and the fact that Negro Leaguers would be um, included? When, when did that conversation start? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't know for a fact that Negro Leaguers are 
uh, going to be included. I think they, they have to be there. There has to be like the pressure to do that. Although uh, Buck O'Neill did not make it onto the last couple early baseball era ballots. That, well, I guess the early baseball era committee has never met. It was the pre-integration era committee is what this this time was called before. So obviously that once again, just by naming it that, you're essentially leaving out the, the Negro League players too, which is a totally unfortunate name that they chose. The fact that it is now the early baseball era committee I believe that that should be opening things up for for uh, black baseball and the Negro Leagues to to be included. Hopefully that is the case. I hope so, too. Yeah. You know, especially in light of everything that's occurred with the designate, the MLB designation, uh, uh, sports references, um, embracing uh, the new data set, uh, the social unrest in this country, especially last year that it, it's, you know, we need to revisit this um, because there's definitely some people who have been overlooked. And um, I bet you we're gonna talk about a couple of them, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what should we be looking for in candidates here? Should we be looking just for statistical record or should we be looking for like pioneering uh, activities that they might've taken on or? Yeah, you know, I, uh, that's a good question. I think uh, a couple things. I think number one, let's let's make sure we have the best players included. Uh, no question about it. But we do need to look at the pioneers um, the same way that uh, that uh, you know white baseball looks at the pioneers from the 19th century. Um, and, and I think we need to look at managers too a little bit. I think they've been overlooked because we didn't have any data, and now we actually have managers win-loss records and, and pennants. And this is stuff that was never really accessible. You knew, you might've known who was running the ball club, but we now actually have win-loss records for teams and for managers. Um, so I, I just think everything is open for consideration. So as we dig into some names, like right off the top of the Buck O'Neill has to be going in. in the, I mean, he has to be on this ballot and he has to be going in. Is, isn't it time for Buck O'Neill? We've been hearing for 15 years how he was this glaring omission. I, yeah. I feel like now has to be the time. Yeah, well, I agree. I, I kind of feel like Buck O'Neill and Ron Santo had parallel paths and that there was, it almost felt like committees were being assembled for the sole express purpose of, uh, of getting them into the Hall of Fame. And then when the vote results came out, they, you know, they would both come short. And of course, Santo gets in after he passes away, which is a sort of a sore spot here, I'm sure for the family and for Cubs fans here in Chicago. And Buck O'Neill, uh, very few people have done as much for the legacy of the Negro Leagues as Buck did. Uh, just a brilliant spokesman um, being featured in the Ken Burns documentary. You know, he was a really good ball player, uh, you know, just looking at his stats, um, he, you know, he's probably doesn't uh, make the cut based on his performance as a ball player. But uh, as a manager, as a developer of young talent, uh, as uh, one of the first black coaches in the major leagues with the Cubs, um, and then his just his uh, public relations and advocacy for the Negro Leagues, uh, his involvement with the Negro League uh, Museum in Kansas City. He deserves to be in Cooperstown, and it would be another <clears throat> another swing and miss if he doesn't make it on the ballot and doesn't make it in this time. Yeah, I have the the same feeling. The only concern I have is I don't know what category they would choose for him because there's, of course, the player, there's the manager, there's the executive slash pioneer. 
there's umpire, which is the one thing that I would say he probably doesn't qualify yeah. under. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, they did create the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award, and I think that they made that because they probably felt terrible that he didn't get inducted in 2006. But I don't feel that's enough for Buck O'Neill. He needs to be at a true Hall of Famer with a plaque in Cooperstown. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Um, uh, definitely. <clears throat> you know, I'm a big fan of his. Um, yeah, I don't know. We don't have a category that takes into consideration all of the different things that somebody does. Um, and maybe that's something that needs to be discussed. Uh, you know, Lefty O'Doul would be somebody that, that I think would fall into to that sort of a category with what he did with the Japanese baseball and in the Pacific Coast League. But <clears throat> I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if they consider him this year. Yeah. Totally agree. So just uh, some numbers. I ran uh, some searches to see from 1920 to 1948. So this is when uh, the, the Negro Leagues uh, are, are given the major league status. Uh, there are 97 Hall of Famers who played in the AL or NL during that time. And on that list, I'm including Mays, Robinson, Dobie, and Campanella, who, who played in the Negro Leagues as well. So that's 97 from and same years, uh, the players who are in the Hall of Fame from the Negro Leagues, it's 28. And that includes uh, Willard Brown and Satchel Page, who, who also played in the AL. Um, right. so 97 versus 28. How do those numbers feel before we start getting into players? Like, should we be looking at uh, inducting dozens more? Should we be looking at finding the few who who we, we missed the first time and, and we need to... Well, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people feel that the 20s and 30s are overrepresented. I don't know if you feel that way. So that's one thing to keep in keep in mind when you talk about 97. But in terms of uh, players uh, that should get in on merit, um, <clears throat> you know, I think it's probably 10 to 12 is uh, the number I've got in my head. I don't think we're talking about eh, that we should we should put 30 guys in there, right? And I don't even know if it's 10 or 12, but it's probably close to 10 or 12 that I think really deserve serious consideration. Great. So let's go ahead and start getting into some players. I have a list here just of players that we can start talking about. Maybe we'll start with pitchers. Some of the names that I have written down are John Donaldson, Chet Brewer, William Bell, Bill Bird. All of them were finalists in 2006, but uh, one more that wasn't a finalist is Nip Winters. And are there any of those you'd like to start with uh, just to chat about? Well, you know, we could talk a little bit about William Bell and uh, Bill Bird, uh, who are both right-handers, uh, similar. You know, Bird, uh, I think on my list, I've, I've, I've done a little bit of homework, Adam. I've got Bird as, uh, well, William Bell is one of the highest-ranked pitchers who has not been in terms of war 162. And I, yeah. I, I don't know how good of a measure that is for, uh, for pitchers, but that's, he's at the top of my list in terms of war 162. Um, long career, you know, 15 years, uh, 101 wins, a 600 winning percentage, 338 uh, ERA. Um, you know, not overpowering, um, but a really good pitcher. And uh, you got some black ink on here, led the league in wins uh, at least three times, uh, you know, per the data right now. Um, I think, uh, wait a minute, I'm talking about, I'm talking about Bird. Uh, William Bell was uh, Kansas City Monarchs pitcher for a long time. 
Um, and again, same story, long career, uh, 114 wins for, for Bell, uh, ERA of 326. Um, and he was on the ballot, uh, you know, 15 years ago and came up short. Uh, I'm not wild necessarily about either one. Like it wouldn't break my heart, but I think I would take, uh, uh, I would probably bell over bird. Um, a lot of people have talked about John Donaldson. Um, you know, Donaldson's, a, <laughs> he's an interesting, he's an interesting figure. Okay. I, uh, let's take uh, Bell and Bird and put them to the side. And let's talk about John Donaldson. Um, he was very famous before World War II, uh, World War I, before the Negro Leagues were founded in 1920. Uh, probably one of the five most famous African-American or Latin pitchers in America. <clears throat> and most of his career was played out west. Um, and by west, I mean uh, South Dakota and Minnesota and Nebraska. Uh, he traveled around with a ball club called the All Nations, which was owned by J.L. Wilkinson, who would eventually uh, turn that team into the Kansas City Monarchs. And so it was, a, it was an integrated team with, uh, they even had a female player, I think one season, he had Native Americans and white ball players and African-Americans and Jose Mendez, the Cuban, played with them for a couple of seasons. And Donaldson was the drawing card. I mean, he used to strike out 15 to 20 guys a game. Um, but the teams he were, was playing against were from these little towns that in, in many cases had less, fewer than a thousand people that lived there, that he was dominating town teams far away from uh, major cities. <clears throat> and then when he makes it into the, the Negro Major Leagues with the Kansas City Monarchs, we see, uh, we see his performance take a serious dip. Um, he's not the number one pitcher, for instance, on any of those Monarchs teams. He was with KC from 1920 to 1924 before uh, electing to leave the league. He was a better hitter than pitcher for the Monarchs. Yeah, yeah. He was playing center field most of the time, and then he might be the third, fourth, or fifth pitcher. And it just strikes me as puzzling that the guy that's dominating and getting headlines, and as soon as he's in a, like a real high-quality uh, league, all of a sudden the performance disappears. You know, the, the, uh, <laughs> the 15 strikeouts a game becomes 5.1, and, and that's maybe the third best on his team behind Bullet Rogan and Sam Crawford. Um, and some of the other guys that he played with. So, you know, I'm a no on Donaldson. Um, he, he did play against the major league and white minor leagues and his record against them is abysmal. Um, you know, an ERA in the four and fives against the white minors and exhibition games as well as the majors. So I like Donaldson. He's a folklore hero, but I don't think he, he doesn't uh, belong anywhere near Cooperstown. Um, whereas you can make a, a case for Bell and, um, and Bill Bird. <clears throat> uh, Nick Winters, you mentioned. Yeah. Nip, I guess he was nicknamed Nip because he liked to have a drink or two. Uh, Eastern Colored League guy in the 1920s. Um, had a couple of really massive seasons. And so, uh, uh, you know, best year was probably 1924. We've got him at 20 and 5 with a 277 ERA. 
looks like you led the ECL in wins four consecutive seasons from the, the first year, 1923 through 1926. Yeah. And then he starts to fade a little bit by the time he's 29 or 30 years old. So with Nip, I would say you've got the peak uh, for consideration, but you just don't have the career length uh, for me. You know, he ends up uh, with a beautiful 89 and 42 record, but a 3.54 ERA. Um, you know, he was a better pitcher than the three other guys we just mentioned when he was at his peak. Okay. You know, he was better than Bell, Bird, and Donaldson. Um, but then it just becomes a question of, are you a, you know, a peak guy versus career length and the fact that he only has eight official seasons right now too. So I don't know if he would even be eligible. Right. Yeah. I, I guess I was wondering about that too. So he didn't have the 10 plus he wasn't on the 2006 ballot. And I was like, Oh, is that because, so that doesn't mean he's not eligible. Oh. And <laughs> I look at, um, who is it? it's Doby Moore who didn't have the 10 seasons either. And he was on the 2006 ballot. So I guess that is not something that disqualifies. I think with the Negro leagues, of course, you've got to look at other leagues they might have played in it. Obviously the, the opportunities were not the same. If, Doby Moore was white, he would not have been playing with the 25th infantry records for years and years. He would have been in the major right. league, that type of thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 I guess. Uh, and the fact is, if we looked at some of the guys that are in the Cooperstown right now, some of them would not hit the 10. So there's already guys that have uh, uh, sort of broken through without having played 10 years, even in the Negro Leagues, there's a handful of them. So, um, yeah, we got to evaluate it a little bit differently because uh, – uh, teams folded midstream. I mean, it was a very volatile situation. And, and sometimes, you, you know, you could make more money barnstorming with the club as opposed to being in a league team. Um, or you would bolt midstream and go down to the Dominican Republic and play there like they did in the, the late 30s. So um, you got to use a little bit different toolbox to talk about these guys. So the pitchers, my God, I don't know, man. Of those four, how about Chet Brewer? We kind of Oh, Brewer, skipped over my guy. So Chet Brewer, interesting guy from, uh, he's from Iowa, uh, played on, uh, you know, in a white high school integrated teams growing up. And, um, you know, Wilkinson, uh, the owner of the Monarchs is from Iowa as well. <clears throat> and they, you know, he recruited him and he pitched uh, uh, most of the 1920s for the Monarchs and then bounced around a little bit and played all the way to the end of the Negro Leagues into his early 40s. Um, he had a couple of monster seasons in the 20s. He was a 15 and two with a with a 222 ER rate plus in 1929, uh, 12 and one in 1926 uh, with a 237 ERA. Um, it, but then you look at his career totals, you know, uh, Kind of interesting. 59 and 51 with the 342 ERA. Uh, boy, oh boy, is he kind of like uh, Nip Winter's Light, where he had a couple of real nice peak seasons, but otherwise was, uh, you know, sort of pedestrian. What do you think? Strangely, he pitched at age 18 and at 41. So it's, it's very, not very Nip Winter's there. It, yes. He had a lot of gaps, which makes me wonder, you know, is he playing for for other teams that weren't major league teams? Should we consider those in our process? So Chet Brewer is a very complicated one for me because I hear his name a lot. Like when, when I'm listening to like Bob Kendrick and his podcast and things like that, Chet Brewer comes up a lot for his, his work after his career as well too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Right, right, right. So he, um, what did he get into, uh, Adam? To become an educator? So he he was. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was a, a scout and running teams, and he was. It was. Um, I believe it was Reggie Smith who was playing for his team, and some some other. Uh, like this was like relatively recent compared to what we're usually talking about with the Negro Leagues, but he was operating teams that young black players would play on and, and he was kind of giving them a pathway to the major leagues. So okay. I don't know how much of that is is a, a thing to consider for the Hall of Fame, but uh, it's, it's a very interesting part of his story. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, at the, at the Seamheads database, you have some of the years that are missing. Um, from the, the front page at uh, Baseball Reference and, uh, you know, 73 and 72, he played on some really good teams, uh, 344 ERA. Um, yeah, do you, do you consider the post-career stuff? Uh, I, I think it's something to consider, but I don't know that, I don't know that Chet Brewer's a Hall of Famer, all things considered. There's a lot of guys that had long careers in white baseball that helped a lot of guys after they were out, you know? Um, I don't know if he, he, well, let's just say he doesn't make the cut for me. Okay. Not I'm right also now. afraid to, to not pick any pitchers because, you know, a lot of these <laughs> offensive stats are gaudy. Uh, yeah. Somebody's got a pitch to them. So that's why I keep going back to like a guy like William Bell and seeing a 135 ERA plus. I th that's a really hard ERA plus to get. And he yeah. did it for a 14 year career. So I'm, yeah. I'm fine William Bell. The other thing about Bell, uh, is uh, against major league competition. He was three and one with a 172 ERA. Okay, super small sample, but it's uh, it's pretty impressive. It is. All right, so let's uh, let's put Bell on our fictional roster, shall we? All right. We'll or, <laughs> yeah, the goal is here is to make a list of five. So we'll, we'll think about mm. Bell for that list. Right. I'm going to put him on the side. He's my uh, of the five pitchers we've just discussed. He's my number one. Okay. Excellent. All right. So if we look behind the plate. Um, first name that pops to mind for me is Double Duty Radcliffe. And wonder if you had yeah. any thoughts. Oh, sure. Yeah. All right. What an interesting guy. And he's a guy that, uh, as the data has emerged, um, it you know it's not showing. <laughs> it's not showing a great, great player. He's a really interesting, charismatic guy who lived to be 103. I live in Chicago. He lived here. So, uh, you know, somebody who would every once in a while pop up on TV or, or in the paper. But um, he's a player for whom the emergence of the data set doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't show uh, a player that lives up to the reputation. Um, how do you feel about him? It's, it's interesting, the double duty aspect, because he actually looks a little bit better as a pitcher from the, the data perspective. Yeah, yeah. Got the 121 ERA plus. Catchers are interesting, too, because um, he was a six-time All-Star. Uh, the other catcher I have written down is Quincy Troop, who was an All-Star eight times, but in five years. Um, and the stats don't really line up with with that that number of all-star appearances either i noticed that a lot with the the negro league all-star catching selections a lot of them weren't hitters you know they weren't all josh Gibson. Yeah. right no that's a good point you know uh really quick the, the other thing before we get away from double duty is the man did not take a base on balls you know he's like the hobby <laughs> he did not take walks he's like the javier baez of, of negro league catchers but uh quincy troop is an interesting guy a switch hitter uh 
born in Georgia, but grew up in, in St. Louis. And I think he played with, uh, uh, got a handful of guys, Luke Easter and some of these guys who uh, would eventually end up in the Negro Leagues at, at a certain point. So he's been broken with the St. Louis Stars as a teenager, uh, bounced around a little bit. Uh, it was with the American Giants and one of the newer versions of the uh, Indianapolis ABCs. And again, um, he's sort of a scant record. He's hurt a little bit by playing in the West, uh, the Negro American League, where the data isn't as robust as uh, um, what we have for the Eastern Leagues. But also, you're looking at a guy that hit, uh, you know, 264 in the games we have, uh, seven home runs per 162 um, 162 games, and he's got a, a war of, well, 2.0 for 162 games. So I like Troop. I love finding box scores that he had played in. I always it was curious. Um, but the data set right now <clears throat> doesn't look like uh, a Hall of Fame player. Right. And his seasons where he was an all-star, uh, his batting averages were 365, 184, 194, 304, and 400. <laughs> but the number of games <laughs> right. we have are 17, 13, 13, 12, yeah. and 8. So, yeah, it's really hard to evaluate him because, I mean, he was getting named to these all-star teams, but we only have like a dozen games here and there. So Yeah, I think he's a guy who uh, we would put to the side for now because we know we're going to find more box scores and maybe his stock will rise as more information emerges. I mean, he did make it to the white major leagues late in life. You know what I mean? So he, uh, you know, we have some minor league data for him. Um, he's a guy that we need some more data from, but he played, uh, boy, boy, he was with Indianapolis and the American Association when he was 39 years old. With an 89 uh, OPS. I mean, there's something yeah. Sure. Yeah, there, there's something there. He's a guy that we need to dig in and find a little bit more information about him. Okay, so we're not going to write him off as dead yet. We're going to say we need to know more about him. Got it. Uh, there are quite a few Negro League first basemen in the Hall of Fame. They're, they're such a great group. We got Suttles, Judd Wilson, Buck Leonard, Ben Taylor. One that caught my eye because, man, 150 OPS plus is going to catch my eye every time. Curious about Edgar Wesley. He's not a guy that you hear much about at all. Yeah, uh, Edgar Wesley, um, interesting uh, left-handed hitter. He, uh, you know, hit 400 one year, played in Detroit. And I think that historian, I'm talking about Negro League historians and the guys that I have talked to, uh, tend to downgrade his performance a little bit uh, because he played in, in Mack Park in, in Detroit, which had a very short porch and right field. Okay, so there's the feeling that uh, his numbers might be uh, inflated a little bit, um, but uh, really good numbers, uh, you know, 324, 391, 532 slash line, OPS of 923. Um, Led the league in home runs in 1920, the first year. Uh, hit as many as 17 and 16, and that's in 60 games and 85 games. So there's power. He hits for average. He uh, uh, very rarely strays away from first base. Um, ends up playing. Uh, we got him for eight seasons in the uh, database at this point. 
he's an interesting guy. I would put him on the let's let's put him on that list with uh, William Bell and think about him. Um, you could hit. Yeah, um, five point seven WAR per one hundred sixty-two. That's that's a pretty mm -hmm. good number. Yes. All right, let's go to second base. We got one of my favorites here. Um, I don't know why I've latched onto this guy, but I really have enjoyed discovering him because I knew nothing about him before, like the baseball reference project, and that's on me. But I'm making up for lost time, and that's Newt Allen. Okay. Yeah, very popular uh, uh, second baseman and shortstop uh, with uh, the Kansas City Monarchs for the most part. I mean, I think he played for uh, the Homestead Grays and the American Giants for a little bit in the late 30s, but for the vast majority of his career, he was one of the mainstays with the Monarchs uh, almost through the entirety of the Negro Leagues, right, from 1923 through uh, the mid-40s, 1944 or so. Um, and the historians I know uh, love Newt Allen. The guys, uh, Larry Lester, uh, Phil Dixon, the guys that uh, got to meet him and know him because they lived in KC, uh, just love him as a person, that he's a gem of a guy, uh, a really good player, uh, a starter and key member of one of the great franchises in Negro League history, um, and could play any, any position in the infield. Uh, there were years where he was the starting shortstop, and uh, there was a number of times he was, uh, like you said, the second baseman trying to look at uh, uh, career games by position in terms of the database. So, yeah, so second base uh, overwhelmingly was his primary position and then shortstop and then third after that. So I, uh, when I think of Newt Allen, I, for some reason, think of Frank White. Um, I think they have similar, uh, you know, like a similar statistical profile. And Frank White is another one of those guys that people are, advocating, you know, great guy. <laughs> and a uh, really, really good player. And does he meet the threshold uh, for the Hall of Fame? I have friends that absolutely uh, believe in Newt Allen and Frank White. Um, I don't know. Uh, two, uh, what do we got? Uh, two, 289, 348, 376 slash line. So not a lot of power. He had really, really good speed. A guy that would have stole 20 to 30 bases a year play a, a really solid second base. Um, I like him, man, 19 years, 19 years in the Negro Leagues, the Negro Major Leagues, um, with one of the great franchises. So there's something there, right? I think what, what's compelling is we have that huge body of work. We have nearly 4,000 plate appearances for him. So that's like, that's getting close to what you have for an AL or NL player at, at, at this point too. Yeah. League average hitter great defensive reputation the the defensive numbers kind of show that too it was a plus 47 defender by yeah. uh, wars fielding runs and that's like eight per 162 games that's a pretty great defender is a league average uh hitter and elite defender at second base a hall of famer bill Mazeroski would say heck yes uh, i don't <laughs> know if that's always the case though i think yeah. he's interesting i just don't know if he's a hall of famer right He's close, man. He's close. He's worthy yeah. of the, but like you said, his, his, we have a, a, a ton of data on the guy. So it is what it is. And it's just a matter of people uh, if they want another second baseman, but I like Newt Allen. I like him. Now tell me about Sammy Hughes. I, he's another that you don't hear much about. He was a finalist in 2006, 
great yeah. numbers, but man, I never see that name. Yeah, Sammy Hughes is uh it's weird too. He lived in 1981, and you don't uh you know, we don't know a ton about the guy. We got 13 years in the database, uh he played in what five or six all-star games. Uh just a really solid hitter, man. 309, 380 OBP. Uh, played most of his career with the elite Giants um, as they went from Nashville to uh, Washington to Baltimore, stayed with the team. So uh, probably had a good relationship with the ownership. I mean, we assume that he was a, a good guy. Um, but again, power-wise, uh, you know, 33 doubles per 162, 10 triples, eight home runs. Uh, eight stolen bases, not overwhelming speed. How do his defensive numbers look, Adam? A tick below average. Okay. Not too much. Right. Below, yeah, and he uh, pretty much was almost exclusively a second baseman, it looks like. So it's pretty rare. Uh, yeah, I like Hughes, man. I, I included him in the strat set that I did back in 2010. I considered him one of the five or six best second basemen in the league or league at that time. I probably still do. I mean, a really solid hitter, man. Uh, you know, uh, 122 OPS plus for a second baseman, um, worthy of consideration, man. I, I wouldn't say a slam dunk. Let's put it that way. Who would you rather have, Newt Allen or Sammy T. Hughes? It's like, man, right? Who would you rather, if you had to pick one, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, based on the peak, I might have to lean towards Hughes, but, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, I don't want to feel like I'm uh, I'm falling in love with Newt Allen. Newt Allen's a uh, plethora of statistical content. <laughs> Just it's a tough question. Falling in love with the data set, he's got to yeah. go in. Well, I think second base is also light. Uh, yeah, uh, John Henry Lloyd, Frank Grant. We had some other players who who played some second base that got in, obviously, but it's right. in terms of primary second base, but not too many from the Negro Leagues already in. Yeah, I mean he's one of the be one of the better offensive second basemen in baseball, but uh, probably not as good as the guy you're about to mention. Who is it? Who's the next guy? Uh, that, well, I was wondering if I should mention oh. Bingo Demos. Is he? He's like all uh, defense. Oh, Bingo Demos, man! I think uh, he's another guy. He's a little bit like Double Duty Radcliffe, where the more we actually learn about him as a player, um, in terms of the data. Uh, you know, his stock has dropped tremendously. He must have been an awesome second baseman because everybody raved about him and liked him and he played a long time. Um, but then you, you look at the offense and you say, oh, my gosh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't much of a hitter in the scene has, you know, 238 hitter. He's I don't think he's you know, we got him for four home runs in 935 games. Uh, not the guy that I think. Uh, belongs in the Hall of Fame, but interesting guy. Right. I mean, when I say Allen was an elite defender with eight fielding runs per 162, Damas was 16. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Pretty crazy. But um, yeah. A ton of speed, too. A ton of speed. I mean, he, you know, in the seam heads, we got him at 39 stolen bases per 162. So the guy was a great athlete, a great defensive second baseman, and he could run. He just wasn't much with the stick. Simple as that. Next guy I want to talk about is uh, perhaps the one guy that uh, his, his, I, I don't understand how he was missed in 2006 after looking yeah. at his numbers, and that's John Beckwith. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Beckwith, I think, is uh, <clears throat> he's the most egregious whiff 
really from the past 50 years, okay? So versus, let me just give you some stats. <clears throat> versus major leaguers in 41 games, he batted 349, nine homers, four triples, 12 home runs. That's 41 games against major league barnstorming teams. Against minor league teams, I'm talking about white minor league teams in 18 games, he hit 370 with six doubles, four triples, and seven home runs in 18 games. He, his slash line at baseballreference.com is 349, 403, 583, a 161 OPS plus. He was considered one of the top three sluggers in the Negro Leagues back in 1950 back in 1940, that he was, along with uh, Josh Gibson and Turkey Stearns, or actually uh, Turkey would be below below those guys. Uh, Suttles and Gibson and Beckwith were the three sluggers. Uh, the, the, and, and I kind of have been thinking about this a little bit and why and how he got lost in the shuffle. And I think it has to do with the absence of statistics that when you when they were electing Satchel Paige and John Henry Lloyd and these guys in the 70s, it was almost 100% uh, on the oral tradition and the, the guys that had been listed in the Pittsburgh Courier all-time list in the early 50s, the guys that players still talked about that everybody knew were great. <clears throat> so you had a list of guys who were legends, Cool Papa Bell, uh, Buck Leonard, uh, Beckwith was certainly among that group. He was certainly a player that was recognized as a great ball player. Uh, the one downside was he was a difficult personality. And so I wondered when they were in these meetings discussing who to consider, if he continually got pushed to the back of the line because of his reputation. He was a guy that jumped contracts, got into arguments with, uh, with managers and team owners and teammates and umpires. He was, a, he was kind of a rough guy. And I think that that is what has sort of soiled his reputation over the past 50 years. Um, not that there wasn't some, you know, uh, jerks that are already in the Hall of Fame. There's tons of them. I mean, Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and all these guys had their moments when they lost their shit and, <laughs> and uh, did, did some things that they probably regretted or maybe didn't later on. And Beckwith would be one of those guys. But his record, I mean, it's just an incredible hitter, a, a, a pole hitter, tremendous power. Uh, the teams would shift their defense like they do now for pole hitters. Uh, I think it was the first guy to hit a home run over the fence at Crosley Field. Um, played a lot of shortstop. I think he would have, uh, I think he could have been a third baseman in the white major leagues. Okay. And he would have redefined the position at that time because third base was a, you know, a lot of defense. It was a Heine Gross, these guys that might hit 300 with two home runs. And I think Beckwith would have been good enough to play third, whether or not he would have been given a chance. I don't know. They probably would have shifted into first base. Um, interesting thing. I, I rebuilt the 1928 season for the Grays. So I, I know a lot about Beckwith that he played shortstop for most of that season. And most of their games were against white minor league teams and semi-pros. And then maybe three dozen against uh, uh, major Negro league teams. And Beckwith would play shortstop that entire season. Uh, his teammate was Martin DeHigo. Uh, and DeHigo would just play everywhere, second base. Uh, he'd pitch, he'd move to third. But at the end of the year, when they played 
uh, a kind of an extended barnstorming tour against American League All-Stars with Jimmy Fox and Rube Wahlberg and these guys. Beckwith was, <clears throat> he was shifted to third base in those series and DeHigo would go and play shortstop. So <clears throat> when they're playing the toughest competition after 150, 160 games, Beckwith goes to third, DeHigo goes to short. And, uh, and they did really well in that series. I think Beckwith, <clears throat> he's absolutely has to be on the, on the uh, list. Yes. He even caught 11% of his games. That stunned me when I saw that. I was like, he's, he's this yes. much hitter. <clears throat> yeah, he played everywhere. He was, uh, I mean, he wasn't a very good shortstop. I think he had a really strong personality, but uh, yeah, he was a tough guy. He wasn't afraid to put on the gear and go back behind the plate and catch. And maybe in that sense, he was you know, a little bit like Jimmy Fox, right? Where he could, right. uh, you know, Jimmy wasn't deployed that way later in his career, but a similar kind of profile. Few more third basemen to bring up. Um, so Alex Radcliffe jumped out at me because he was an, an all-star in eleven seasons, which is, I think, the most of any player outside of the Hall of Fame, if you exclude like the Barry Bonds and whatnot. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. yeah then, I, oh, we can go I'm right sorry, into go Radcliffe. Go for it. Double duty's brother. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, the better of the two. Uh, I would argue that Alex Radcliffe is actually the better ball player than. Than double duty, not as famous, not as charismatic, but you know the guy played 17 years. I uh, got a decent data set for him: <clears throat> uh, 291 hitter, uh, you know 112 uh, OPS. And I kind of fell uh, in love with the guy when I was rebuilding the 1943 season. He happened to have a really good year that year. Mm. Hit uh, 369. Not, not a lot of games, but uh, you know 30 games. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the downside is. Uh, you know, he took more walks than his brother, you know, he got him 41 walks in 162 games. So, you know, again, a little bit impatient, uh, uh, hard hitter. Uh, how do his defensive numbers look? Let me take a look here. Covering right around league average. About, yeah, about it. Okay. So an average uh, league average third baseman could play a little bit of shortstop in a pinch. I like Alex Radcliffe. Am I going to bang the drum for induction into Cooperstown for him? Probably not yet, but he's a guy that I'd like to see more data uh, yeah. for. That's the kind of, that's kind of the way I feel. And I think we'll have more, we'll probably plug in some gaps in the, in the late thirties and forties for him. And maybe that'll change uh, um, our perception of him. but just a really, really good player and, and the better of the brothers. Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, so Another infielder who played a lot of third and second, uh, very big bat, George Scales. Yeah, I I like George Tubby Scales. Uh, you know, a husky guy. Um, where do I have Scales on my list? I got him at 5.4 uh, war per 162. Um, he's another guy that's really underappreciated. Um, really good hitter. What do we got? 20 years. So we got a huge data years, set yeah. for this guy, man. Uh, uh, 147 OPS plus uh, for us old school guys. That's a slash line of 319, uh, 421, 509 slugging. Um, his typical season would have been like 37. No, not uh, 162 games. You're talking about 37 doubles, seven triples, 15 home runs. So he had power. Um, played a lot of third, played a lot of second, um, had a little bit of pop. And he was a really good hitter, man. You're talking about, uh, you know, he took walks. 
you know, he was a winner. He was a leader. Uh, you know, you talk about X factors aside from the stats, which are really impressive for him. Uh, he was a manager in Puerto Rico for many years at the end of his career and had a 414 and uh, 276 record there. He won a record six pennants in the Puerto Rican League. Um, he would bring a he would bring a powerhouse club down there in the winter. He had Willard Brown. He had Jim Gilliam, who ended up with the Dodgers. And Gilliam, I saw, I came across an interesting article, an interview with Gilliam in the 50s when he was playing with Brooklyn. And he went out of his way to cite uh, the influence that George Scales had had on his career. <clears throat> and that, uh, I guess, when Gilliam broke in into the Negro Leagues, he was a right-handed hitter. And Scales was the guy who encouraged him to become a switch hitter. And uh, Gilliam thought that was, uh, you know, a big reason why he ended up in the white major leagues was uh, the encouragement and the uh, sort of the influence of George Scales. So he kind of checks off all the boxes for me. I really, really like Scales. Uh, he's, he's got the numbers. He's got the career length. He had some really great seasons. And then we know he was a, a, a good leader and a guy who had an influence on younger ballplayers. So I'm really high on George Scales. Excellent. Yeah, I I can't find a flaw. He's the type of guy who makes me think, yeah, there probably are 10 or 12 players outside the hall that we need to start looking at. Like, you don't last 20 years with 147 OPS plus without getting in the Hall of Fame. Like, it just doesn't happen. Right, right. No, I love this guy, man. <laughs> I, would, uh, I would vote yes. He should at least be on the ballot and considered. Cool. Um, Oliver the Ghost Marcel is our last third baseman I wanted to bring up. Is he another guy that the more the data comes in, maybe less is thought of him? Uh, yeah, I, I don't hear as many people talking about him. Let's put it that way. He was a, another interesting character, a, a rough guy who uh, I guess got half of his nose bitten off in a fight. Or, um, what do we got? We got seven, seven years for him in the database. You know, not bad though, Adam. Not bad. I mean, you, you know what I mean? Uh, he hit 300, but it's kind of a maybe a little bit of a, an empty soft. 300. Yeah, a little bit hitter. Yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, good hitter. Uh, it looks like, uh, you know, uh, average speed, um, almost exclusively a third baseman. But he was another one whose reputation was that of a really great. Uh, Defensive player, and I don't know if the stats actually support that. Let's take a peek here. A little bit above range. average. A little bit above average. Um, a, a good range. Um, 932 fielding percentage. Uh, Marcel, I don't know, man. I feel like <laughs> I have Randy Jackson from American Idol. I'm, like, I'm a no dog. I don't know if I'm ready for him. Okay. <laughs> That's fine because oh, yeah. we're about to get to two shortstops that I think um, might okay. be on our list anyway. Sure. So I referenced him earlier, uh, Doby Moore, 2006 finalist. Oh, God. Yeah, I love, <laughs> love Doby Moore. Um, born in Georgia, joins the Army. He ends up in Hawaii with Oscar Heavy Johnson and uh, Bullet Rogan and Lemuel Hawkins, and they play on the team that you mentioned, the 25th Infantry um, Army team. And I've done a little research into the Hawaiian papers and looked at those clubs. Um, they were, they were a, let me just first say this. I'm going to give somebody a book idea. 
Somebody out there that has the talent, go and research baseball in Hawaii before 1920. It is fascinating, man. You have Japanese all-stars, um, Chinese. Uh, you have white uh, military teams, black military, all playing in the same league. And the, the coverage was terrific. Uh, people like Bullet Rogan and Buck Lai, and uh, they were heroes in Hawaii and celebrated as such. And they had, they had events to celebrate Bullet Rogan. So it was a really awesome baseball environment and they could play year round and they would get busy, you know, the, the Pacific coast league and major league players would visit in the winter and play, play series against them. So that's where Dobie Moore cut his teeth. And what I've learned about the early part of his career uh, is he was playing mostly third base in Hawaii. Okay. And the coverage, he was still developing as a hitter. He might've been hitting about six or seven in the lineup. Oscar, Johnson and Rogan were really the big, big stars, especially Rogan. So Moore was really known more for his glove in Hawaii. Um, and the coverage was just incredible range at third base, um, a cannon arm. And that's what they would write about in the game stories. Every once in a while, you hit a ball 420 feet for a home run. But I don't think he hit for a real high average there from what I've seen. Seems to be still developing as a player. So uh, he gets out of the army, he comes back to the States and he connects with his old army buddies uh, with the Kansas City Monarchs and everything just clicks from jumpstart. So he moves to shortstop and he just starts raking at the plate. Um, and so much so that in his rookie year, he catches the attention of the white sports writers in Kansas City. You had a AAA team there called the Kansas City Blues. They had a rookie shortstop named Glenn Wright, <clears throat> who you might be familiar with, who ended up in the, having a real nice major league career. And so there was an ongoing debate for a couple of years in Kansas City about who was better, Dobie Moore or Glenn Wright. And uh, so I think that's a testament to how good Moore was. Uh, he had a fantastic arm, um, but he could just rake, man. The dude could absolutely hit too. And later in life, uh, J.L. Wilkinson and Tom Baird, who owned the Monarchs, whenever they were asked their all-time Monarchs team, <clears throat> invariably they'd have Dobie Moore as the, uh, you know, as the shortstop. <clears throat> and I think that's, uh, and they would both always say, man, the guy, he had more power than people kind of realize, and he had a cannon arm, and he was a great defensive player. So, um, and that's high praise, man, because Kansas City was always a very good team. So, you know, you had Dobie Moore, you had uh, Jose Mendez played a little bit of short for them. <clears throat> Newt Allen, who we mentioned, Willard Brown for a little bit in the 30s, <clears throat> Jesse Williams, and then Ernie Banks. And so the owners of the Monarchs are saying Dobie Moore is better than all of those guys. And that includes Banks and Brown and Mendez. So it's pretty high praise. <clears throat> the question yeah. is, uh, again, it's just he didn't play a lot of years. He... Uh, got caught in a compromising position by his, either his wife or his girlfriend, and he got shot in the leg, and his career was immediately over. He was really seriously injured to the point where he uh, had to use a cane for much of, uh, of his later years. But, man, I love him. I love that, <laughs> I love that guy. <clears throat> Newt Allen, I said he was an elite defender with eight runs at second base per 162 games. Bingo DeMoss, I said, was... 16 he was double that 
Well, Dogan Moore at shortstop, he's 19 (laughs) and also 42 at the bat. So this is is the Sandy Koufax of batters. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And he would have been, you know, we think about the shortstops, the best in the Negro Leagues. uh, Home run Johnson was the best at the turn of the century. Then it was, uh, you know, John Henry Lloyd. And then it was Dick Lundy. And the Dobie Moore would have, you know, would have been battling it out with Lundy if his career didn't get shut, uh, cut short so tragically and sudden. He's great, man. I, if if nobody has a problem with seven years, and it's pretty well documented, seven. Man, he's. It's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to say no. This guy needs to be considered, right? Yeah, so let's jump right into Lundy. He's another huge one that, that comes up an awful lot. Yeah, uh, Dick Lundy is another one where I scratch my head and I'm trying to figure out why he's not already in the Hall of Fame. He was considered a star during his time. He was considered a star when his career was over. And he was, you know, like I said, between between uh between uh, John Henry Lloyd and Willie Wells, Lundy was considered the best shortstop in the Negro Leagues. Matter of fact, when John Henry Lloyd started to get older, uh, they were teammates for a while. And, you know, Lundy was the one that kind of pushed Lloyd over to second base and he took over at short. Um, his numbers are crazy, right? He, I got him at a, a 5.9 uh, war um, per 162. And Dobie Moore was 8.8. Best yeah, I know. I know. Just, just ridiculous, right? Um, yeah, you know, he's up there with the Hornsby and uh, Barry Bonds level. That's where Dobie Moore is for people to kind of uh, contextualize that. Um, Lundy, <clears throat> 331 career hitter, uh, 394 OBP, uh, 871 OPS, uh, 129 OPS plus uh played uh, almost exclusively shortstop he played some other positions as well but it you know uh, almost exclusively shortstop and like i said he was in his own time uh considered the best in the game so i don't know how he has been omitted up until this point i mean it's 2021 they've been electing negro leaguers off and on sporadically for 50 years and he's still on the outside looking in. And I think he would have to be considered for the ballot for sure. Excellent. Oh boy, we've been talking a lot and we're just getting to the outfielders. I, I think I have a half dozen. <laughs> so maybe I'll like with the pitchers, I'll throw out some names and we can think okay. of who we want to talk about. And sure. they're unfortunately a, a list of great names again. Oscar Heavy Johnson, we already talked about. Curly yeah. McNair, Rap Dixon, Wild Bill Wright, Alejandro Alms, Fats Jenkins, Roy uh, Red Parnell. They were all finalists in 2006, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of good guys to pick, uh, to choose from. Um, boy, oh boy. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a fan of uh, I'm a fan of Rap Dixon. I, I you know, he uh, he reminds me, I don't know how old you are, Adam, but uh, you're probably close to my age. Reminds me of Eric Davis a little bit. Um, he, to me, uh, just everything about him, um, the wiry, strong build, uh, the speed. Uh, Rap Dixon had a cannon arm. 
the, the whole, just the whole thing, the whole look and the whole game that he brought was very similar to Eric Davis at his peak. Um, wraps a, again, 336 career hitter in the sports reference database. Uh, he got some monster seasons in the, the late 20s. Uh, he went to Japan with the team, so he missed. A, he basically missed a season. Went on tour to Japan with the Negro League All Star team. So, um, what an interesting guy! <clears throat> I mean, uh, power, speed, arm. The only downside is he did he got injured in the early uh, '30s, and his career takes a dip after about age 31 or 32. So. The only con I can see is uh, career length. Uh, he was basically done by 33 or 34 years old. So I, you know, I, it's something you got to consider. But when he was at his peak, he, and again, it's a little bit like Eric Davis too. And then Eric have uh, cancer, and his career kind of got shut, uh, you know, short circuited a little bit. So I like Rap Dixon, um, Oscar Heavy Johnson. Uh, ridiculous ridiculous offensive numbers right um absolutely look fake 370 average in the, in the major yeah. sports 28 <clears throat> yeah. 592 slugging. that's heavy heavy johnson baby he was uh outfielder and he could catch he caught a lot in uh as a matter of fact he was rogan's catcher in hawaii uh a good hitter in hawaii hit for power and then he came here and um just ridiculous uh Three, yeah, three. It's just you look. It's like video game stats. Like ah, three seventy, um, with power, and he could steal a few bases here and there. And he took walks. Uh, you know, an OPS one point zero two zero one seventy OPS plus. Um, and I don't know why more people don't talk about him now. We've only got eleven seasons for him. Um, I don't know what he was doing later in his career. He kind of fades, drops off the scene a little bit, would, would play a couple games with clubs. But I know he had his best years with the Monarchs, um, uh, the Baltimore, um, the Black Sox. He went east and played with the you know, Harrisburg Giants. And he hit everywhere. So, I mean, how do you feel about this guy as just somebody looking at the data set? His stats are shocking. Like the just to see like the 370 average and 170 OPS plus. The only <laughs> thing is like the the longevity. It, it's tough. He was like Dixon. He was done for the most part in the mid 30s. Played a few more games here and there, but nothing much to speak of. Although I guess some of them were in Memphis, so there could be more more games to find. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. I I feel like. I feel like he's going to be on the ballot, but I, I feel like I'm saying that about more than 10 players. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Uh, yeah. He should be on the ballot. He's one of the best hitters in the history of the Negro leagues, just a short career. Uh, Wild Bill Wright. Uh, this is another really, really interesting guy who played in the thirties and forties. You know, he played a lot of his career in Mexico. You know, he, uh, kind of got sick of the situation here and went and played, uh, uh, the number of seasons uh, in the 40s, he went and played down in Mexico. So, um, boy, oh, boy, what a player, man. He, uh, in Latin America, he had 364 <laughs> for his career. Um, I have heard, you know, he was 6'4", 220, um, switch hitter, uh, good arm. Uh, a lot of people compared him to Dave Parker. 
that that you know just a physically and his game uh, was very similar to Dave Parker. Uh, that's the comparison I've heard in the community that researches this stuff. Um, really good player. I don't know if he gets discounted for going to Mexico, uh, where life was a hell of a lot better for an African American athlete than it was here at that time. Uh, let me see what we got at the baseball reference. You got 325, you got a 135 OPS plus. Um, Similar theme, though. We don't really have anything after he turned 30 for the most part. Yeah, yeah, exactly what we do, but it's in Mexico. You know, he, he goes to Mexico. Yeah, at age 29 and 30, the seam has, uh, database has him in Mexico, but really nothing after 45. Right. Yeah, he's gone. And he lived a long life, man. He, you know, uh, uh, married uh, a Mexican woman and, and right, right. Did, did, stayed there. He never came back, man. He, he passed away in 1996. So uh interesting guy i just don't know uh you know certainly he probably had a hall of fame ability but uh i don't know if the career you know warrants uh hmm. yeah it's tough huh it sure it's is tough. no it's tough i you know i'd have to put the other guys i mean i'd have to put Dobie moore and heavy johnson and beckwith and lundy and probably even tubby scales ahead of him if i was trying to winnow down my list okay okay I mean, does this list of hitters make you possibly appreciate the pitchers a little bit more too? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. They had no easy task. Uh, you know, one of the things people don't realize about Negro league baseball and eventually once we put game logs, say at the uh, baseball reference is the best play best teams, they would play an unbalanced schedule. So the Homestead Grays in 43 would have played most of their games against the other top two or three teams. You know, they, they dominated, but they, they only played one game against the New York Black Yankees, who they had a feud with, and there was a terrible team. So um, a lot of these stars, I, I guess my point is, is uh, Bill Wright and Josh Gibson and Buck Leonard and these guys, um, you know, they were playing against uh, the, the star pitchers and the star teams most of the time. They weren't getting fat off of uh, uh, the bottom feeders. And there was always some really, really bad teams in the Negro Leagues, but they wouldn't play uh, as many games against them. It just was bad for business. So um, the, the, he's a legitimate hitter. He's a really, really good hitter. Uh, he's got power. He has speed. He uh I have some stories about him that I've heard from some former players that I will not share on this podcast, but if I ever meet you in person, I will tell you them. Okay. <laughs> Let me just say a very, very in colorful uh, personality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and the, the other outfielders we have on the list too, Hurley McNair for the Monarchs with the 135 OPS plus Alejandro yeah. Ohms. Or Ohms. Yeah, Ohms is, you know, Ohms was a great hitter. He was uh you know, Cuban, um, again, famous and highly respected during his career. You know, he's a guy that everybody knew this guy could flat out hit. Um, uh, McNair was, you know, he was a great player too. But let me look at Ohm's stats and see where we got him at. Alejandro Ohm. So we got seven seasons now at Baseball Reference. Uh, yeah, 144 OPS plus, a 329 hitter. And uh, actually more showing more power than I remember, Adam, as I look at the data now and kind of revisit it. So, you know, 18 home runs per 162, 
you know, played most of his career, uh, almost all of it in the East uh, with the Cuban Stars teams and the New York Cubans later on. Um, he's a guy that if we were serious about this, I would want to go pull up his Cuban data as well and, and build this sort of comprehensive dossier. I think he's a guy that should be I think he should be considered. It would be nice to, to you know, look at some of the Cubans that we hope overlooked, and he would definitely be one center fielder. Um, I think he played on the, uh, let me double check really quick. He was with uh, the Santa, the famous Santa Clara team in uh, the early 20s, 20, uh, 23, 24, when he played with the, uh, I think the outfield was uh, Oscar Charleston and uh, uh, Pablo Mesa and uh, Alejandro Ohms. And uh, interestingly enough, in their one famous season, they went to 36 and 11. This is in Cuba. Uh, you know, Oscar Charleston hit, hit uh, 379. Here's the slash line for Oscar. 379, 463, 533. In about the same amount of games, Alejandro Ohm's slash line was 384. That's higher than Oscar's. 463, the same exact as Charleston. And then uh, his slugging percentage was actually higher than uh, Charleston. So, um, and Dobie Moore was on that team and he was right there with him, 386, 398. So a dominant team um, and Ohm's held his own with two of the greatest players uh, from Negro League history, Charleston and Moore. So uh, he's an interesting guy, man. I think people should take a hard look at him and maybe consider him. Oh, yeah. Wow, what a team that was. Dobie, also Oliver Marcel, Frank Duncan, Frank Ward. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy, crazy good team. I think, uh, I can't remember if it was Dobie or uh, Oscar said it was the best team they've ever played on. So <clears throat> famous team. They had to break up the league. They were so good and kind of consolidate the opponents to make it a little bit more competitive. And they still, yeah, they still ended up winning the second season. Incredible. We still didn't get to Red Parnell, who oh, he just happened to win a batting title and an ERA title. Yeah, another guy. <laughs> Red Parnell. Uh, I think of him as a Southern ball player, um, in the sense that he. Uh, the, came up through the Negro Southern League, which was kind of like the de facto AAA of the Negro Leagues. Um, a guy that could play, uh, you know, pitch and hit, and a really good hitter. Um, I'm trying to find my, uh, I want to see what we got listed for him. Yeah, we don't have much pitching data, but... Uh... Or now, what do we got for him? Uh... Most of his time in left field. Again, you get a really nice, uh, <laughs> a really nice slash line, man. 328, 386, 42. Um, lots of doubles and triples. Uh, could hit a home run every once in a while. Could steal bases. Uh, started in South and ended up the end of his second half of his, of his career with the Philadelphia Stars. Um, interesting guy. Interesting guy. Those weren't very good ball clubs that he played on. So I don't know if we discount. Uh, might have been a couple of good years. <clears throat> but the Philadelphia Stars were kind of a second division team at that time. And uh, right. Roy Red Parnell was with him. He was one of their best players. 
And Fats Jenkins is kind of the last outfielder I have. He was a, a 2006 finalist, and he just happened to hit 334 in his major league career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another uh, really great athlete from New York, um, famous basketball player, point guard, probably almost more famous as a basketball player during his career than he was as a baseball player. You know, baseball was just something he did uh, – during the summer <laughs> when they weren't playing basketball. And he was really good, really fast guy. Uh, looks like he played mostly left field. Um, again, a real nice strat, uh, stat line and, and profiles as, you know, top of the order, speedy, old school, kind of leadoff guy, you know. Um, and we know he was a fantastic athlete and smooth. Uh, we have 11 seasons in the database, which is nice, uh, almost 500 games. So, Interesting guy. How do his stats look at him <clears throat> defensively? Uh, defensively, he, he was a, a, a solid tick above average. Okay. Yeah. There we go. And the range looks pretty good. Uh, yeah. Uh, interesting guy. I don't know that I'm beating the drums for him to get into Cooperstown, but he's an interesting, interesting player. Yeah, including a lot of these names is just an exercise in showing, you know, how many players there really are on the outside that that could be considered. But I yeah. think what this does do is it makes like the 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 Oscar Heavy Johnsons and the Dobie Moores and Dick Lundy's maybe stand out a little bit more when when you see that this this tier under them, there's a lot more players. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Absolutely. It's fun. It's fun. Uh, we forgot to... oh, go ahead. Maybe. Uh... Maybe Spotswood polls. You know, this is a guy who played uh, most of his career before the Negro Leagues were founded and uh, just incredible speed. I don't know. He was I don't think he was a, a hitter on the same caliber with some of the guys we've been talking about, but um, just incredible, incredible base stealer. He played with really, really good teams. And uh, he was on the ballot, I want to say. Uh, I don't know if he made the final cut, but he was on the ballot back in uh, 06 at, at one point in that process. And a guy who averaged, um, per the Seamheads data set, he averaged 64 stolen bases per 162 games. Wow. <clears throat> That's crazy. A 311 batting average. This includes Cuba and, and that sort of stuff. 391 OBP. So, he, you know, he got on base. I think the guy probably would have been a 270 hitter in the white majors and would have been challenging Ty Cobb for stolen base crowns. He was a crazy, uh, aggressive, uh, you know, speedy uh, base stealer and during a time when that was, you know, valued. So he's an interesting guy to consider. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that kind of brings us right into the, the pre-Negro leagues players or the players who kind of towed that line. Mm -hmm. uh, one that we mentioned earlier um, in passing was Grant Home Run Johnson. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Holy cow. It, yeah. Interesting guy. Let me see what we got. We're not going to. Now, this guy, he, you know, he started playing in the late uh, 19th century. Right. Um, he probably the, they founded the, uh, the Page Fence Giants along with Bud Fowler. He was their captain. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so a 2006 finalist too. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, he he was probably the best player in black baseball at that time in the 1890s and the early part before John Henry Lloyd showed up on the scene. I, I think you can make an argument that uh, Johnson was the best player, the best black player in America. 
um, had really good power, great arm, um, you know, relatively speaking, right? Um, Grant Johnson. Seam heads, we've got them with 310, 396, 399. So, you know, you're talking about six home runs per 162. I think he hit some, he kind of like Homer and Baker, where he hit a couple of <laughs> yeah. timely, you know, timely home runs, and then the nickname stuck with him. But, you know, he had power. Uh, he could run 36 stolen bases per 162. Uh, the other thing, he played a lot in Cuba, and it was really hard to hit down in Cuba. Um, they had a they had a skinned infield down there at that time that was uh, uh, so they had no grass in the infield and the uh, the soil. It, it, it took me years to figure out why the the offense was so suppressed down in Cuba. the The infield dirt was made with a crushed uh, sea seashells, uh, which is easy for me to say. And so the sunlight in Cuba would reflect off of this. It was really difficult to hit down in Cuba. Um, and yet in almost 200 games, we've got him with a 287 average down there, which is really, really high. You know, the, the league context down there was ridiculous, uh, you know, pitcher and defense friendly. But one of the things to, you know, if you're sort of new to uh, the Negro Leagues and you want to learn about it, look for the guys who played in Latin America. Mm-hmm. That in and of itself, and I'm talking about African-Americans, if you were a Negro Leaguer who was asked to go play in Cuba uh, or the Dominican or Puerto Rico or Mexico, that kind of separates, um, you know, the, the contenders from the pretenders a little bit. And he played a lot in Cuba, so we know he was good. Uh, 23 games against major leaguers, he hit 272. Again, this is the dead ball era. Uh, he was a really good player and apparently a good guy and he played forever. I think he ended up in upstate New York and just played with semi-pro teams until he was 120 or whatever. So uh, Grant Johnson's an interesting guy and probably, you know, I don't know if he uh, deserves or belongs on the ballot this year, but somebody who probably eventually should be in Cooperstown. He was probably the best black player in the country for close to 10 years. So something to keep in mind. That, that definitely sounds like someone that should probably be considered. Yeah. We have 400 games, 158 OPS plus on the same heads, but we also have to consider that almost all of those games are in his thirties. So he could have been even better in his twenties and we don't even have those stats. That's right. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, so also in the pre-Negro Negro leagues era, how about uh, cannonball Dick Redding? This name comes up a lot too. And, yeah, just we have limited stats, but I'm curious of your thoughts. Yeah, um, I mean, listen, uh, Joe Williams and Cannonball Dick Redding were the just the two biggest names in black baseball. You know, uh, from 1910 to 1925, they were I mean, sort of considered equals. Uh, Redding was uh, featured in most of the early uh, uh, books and literature written about the Negro Leagues in the 70s, like. He was uh, as famous as all of these other guys we've mentioned, and somehow his stock has has faded over the years. <clears throat> and um, I don't know why. <laughs> I can't put my finger on it. Um, again, we're only getting the tail end of his career at Baseball Reference, and and um, and it's not particularly pretty. Uh, right, nine and twenty-one with a four forty-three ERA. Um, 
an ERA plus of uh, 98. I mean, overall, the steam head stats in the Negro Leagues are 109 and 80, 2.91 ERA and 129 ERA plus, which looks a heck of a lot better. Yeah. Yep. And he had some big seasons. Uh, you know, it's I'm trying to look at, uh, you know, like one of his best years is a 1921. Uh, you know, he was at 19 and 13 but it's not going to be included because they had not formed the Eastern Colored League. So a lot of the, his best work, obviously, is just not, uh, it just doesn't show up in the data set unless you go to seam heads and check it out. So, you know, yeah, 140 wins, 119 losses. Uh, he's good, man. He really should be, I think people should revisit. Dick Redding. He was one of the most, he was one of the five most famous guys uh, prior to 1920 or 1925. So, yeah, especially some, considering we don't have as many pitchers on our list. And yeah, he should be. Yeah. Uh, listen, I would put Redding above, uh, you know, Bird and uh, Bell and uh, Donaldson and Nip Winters. I think Redding should be at the top of the pitcher list. Excellent. I just decided that. <laughs> One more picture before we say that, uh, and this is going back a little further, is George Stovey. Mm, okay. Yeah, Stovey's an interesting figure in terms of, uh, from a historical standpoint, and that he was, he was playing in the white minor leagues before the, the, the color line had been drawn, you know, in the 1890s. Uh, I think he was in the International League. He won uh, <clears throat> 34 games one year. Uh, had a black catcher for a while, Walker. Yep. And he was, uh, I, I think he was central to the story with Cap Anson, uh, that uh, uh, Cap Anson and the Chicago White Stockings were going to play an exhibition game um, against the minor league team. And uh, I believe Anson put his foot down and said, we're not going to play if you put these two black guys on the field, period. Um, and they uh, acquiesced to his demands. And uh, the, the next season, I believe, um, or the year after Stobie was off the team, he bounced around with a couple of white minor league teams and then uh, was sort of uh, drummed out of uh, organized baseball, as were all of the other African-Americans, right? But he was a really, really good pitcher. Um, gosh. <clears throat> Yeah, the top minors, he was uh, like 60 and 40 with a 217 ERA. And yeah. uh, Tom McGraw was a big fan. Um, just wonderful numbers. Uh, I He's a tough one because we don't have the body of data to, to look at, but he did it in the, the white minor leagues. He played well in the, the proto-Negro leagues as well. Mm -hmm. Yep, He might have uh, – points for his pioneering aspect as well too so he's just yet another interesting candidate yeah yes yeah yeah it's going to have to be a little bit more than the data set you got to just sort of contextualize uh, you know his role in the history of the game and the history of integration um uh, but the stats are really really good no matter where you look so interesting guy i, I mean i don't claim to know a ton about him but i have um in the past i have researched the, the cuban giants teams of the the 1800s and he was absolutely one of the stars so interesting guy that people should maybe uh, not forget all right so i've got a list of managers and executives here that we could potentially talk about as well 
Uh, Vic Harris is one. Seven Penance, also a great player. who was a seven-time All-Star. Gus Crowley, uh, owner of the Crawfords, founded the, the second Negro National League in the East-West game. Mm-hmm. C.I. Taylor and Candy Jim Taylor. Uh, Dave Malarker is another one that I have written down. I don't know as much about him. Curious if you'd like to touch on any of these. Yeah, yeah, let me talk about a couple. Um, I'm sorry, I missed the last one. I've got Harris, I've got Greenlee, I've got C.I. Taylor and Candy Jim Taylor. And uh, what was the one that I missed, Adam? Dave Malarker. Oh, okay. I may not be saying that right. Yeah, I think it's Malarcher, but uh, he's a Chicago guy. I, uh, well, let me start with Gus Greenlee. Um, he kind of a shady, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, a shady guy, you know, he uh, ran uh, cabarets and nightclubs and uh, was a numbers uh, guy. He kind of ran the policy in uh, Pittsburgh in the black community. Um, and I, I think he ultimately became more destructive. Uh, you know, basically he put together a super team, the Crawfords. Um, they dominated baseball for five or six years and then uh, uh, Greenlee got into some trouble with some of the other owners and the next thing you know he was he walked away from baseball and focused on his other stuff I guess there's a rumor that he uh, took a huge loss in the lottery and kind of didn't have the financing that he used to have um, he helped in conjunction with uh, the Tito family a, a, a white uh, businessman that owned a, a brewery in Pittsburgh they built a you know Greenlee Field which is you know not the first African-American owned baseball field so uh, he did a ton of stuff in like seven years. Uh, and then he did a bunch of sort of destructive stuff in the forties where he, uh, uh, the, the basically the other league owners wouldn't let him in. He wanted to get back in 42 and 43. Um, and they didn't want any part of him. I mean, Gus was a, a huge personality I, for me. He is too problematic to consider for Cooperstown. Yeah. Um, um, on the on the flip side, uh, Dick Harris is a guy who deserves really really serious consideration. Um, as you mentioned, he was a very good uh, a very good left fielder for a long time. He spent the, the majority of his career with the Homestead Grays, uh, and uh, he was the manager during the first part of their peak in the late '30s and early '40s. Um, He's got a terrific record as a manager. Um, I've got him at uh, 547 and 278, which is the 663 uh, winning percentage. Of course, he's got some of the greatest players uh, in the world playing for him, and uh, Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson and uh, Cool Papa Bell eventually, and uh, Judd Wilson. But the fact is they won with him at the helm. I guess he was sort of a tough guy, tough competitor. And I just think the combination of uh, his playing career and his career as a player manager warrants uh, serious consideration. He should absolutely uh, be given serious consideration, even this year. Um, C.I. Taylor, this one of the famous uh, Taylor brothers, there were five or six of them who played big time baseball, including Candy Jim, who we'll talk about. I don't know a lot about C.I. Taylor. He was uh, the owner of the Indianapolis ABCs in the, uh, the, the years uh, prior to the formation of the, the Negro National League. And he owned the club um, in the, the first couple of years. And then he passed away and his wife took over and she became the, um, the first female owner of a, a Negro League team in the 1920s. 
but one thing about C.I. Taylor is he was much more instrumental in the creation of the league that he's been given credit for. And I think that's one of the things that historians need to uh, maybe highlight. Um, we don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of literature around about Taylor, uh, but he is a guy who uh, was instrumental and by all accounts was a, a, a fair and equitable owner and he deserves consideration. <clears throat> One guy I do know a lot about is his brother, Candy Jim Taylor. And um, for Candy Jim is, for me, he's a, a lot like Vic Harris, that we, we have overlooked this man's career. Candy Jim Taylor was a baseball lifer. Mm. He was involved with the top level of black baseball from basically 1904 or five, all the way until his death in the late 40s. Um, and shoot, he was still uh, once in a while putting himself in as a pinch hitter when he was 55, 56 years old. Um, he, he bounced around a lot. Um, but I think, and I haven't checked the data, he, he has to have more uh, wins and probably more losses than any manager in the database. He just, he had a really, he's kind of like the Connie Mack of Negro League Baseball. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, slightly below 500 record, but yeah, yeah. But he won two World Series with the Grays when he took over for Vic Harris for two years, so he did get the World Championships. I I spent uh, <clears throat> I spent some time with Art Pennington, who played with uh, who played under uh, Taylor, and we talked about him. Um, Pennington retired in Iowa. He passed away a couple of years ago, but he had a he had a photo in his room black and white photo of uh, Jim Taylor and him in suits. It was a formal portrait. And that, that's how highly he thought of him, that Taylor discovered him down in Tennessee and, and recruited him as a teenager to play for the Chicago American Giants. He said the ball players didn't call him Candy Jim. Uh, they called him Uncle Jim um, because they were, Jim Taylor really was drawn to young athletes. He, uh, he loved finding new talent. Um, and developing it. And uh, Pennington was one of the young guys that he recruited and uh, everybody respected him. I know Buck Leonard respected him when he managed the Grays. Uh, just a great baseball guy, a guy that if he was born today would probably fit the profile of a division one college coach uh, in basketball, for instance, a guy that really loves working with young kids. I don't think Taylor's experience, despite the two World Series wins in uh, with the Homestead Grays in 43 and 44, I don't think his experience running a talented team was uh, was that fun for him. Um, this was a bunch of veteran ball players. It wasn't his wheelhouse. And despite the success, he had to deal with a lot of bullshit um, behind the scenes. And some of that was from Vic Harris, who... Uh, uh, may have been forced out of the job after their embarrassing loss to the Monarchs in the 42 World Series, um, <clears throat> or may have decided to step away and work for a factory. Uh, at any rate, Vic Harris uh, rejoins the team, Candy Jim's first year in 43, in a rift. Uh, it, Taylor never had complete control of that clubhouse for two seasons and left and, and had a lot of negative things to say about it after he left. And he was happier in a weird way, he was more of a baseball man. Yeah. He just loved young guys that loved baseball, if that makes any sense. He wasn't, it wasn't always about winning. And Vic Harris was more of a very driven, competitive, punching in the face to win a ball game type of skipper. 
And Taylor was a guy who just loved baseball. It was his life. He never got married. And I love Candy Jim Taylor. I think he should be. Uh, I think he should be on the list, man. Excellent. I have a couple of names of pioneers. We don't have to dive deeply into them because we're going to do a separate episode on pioneers. But if you had any thoughts on Bud Fowler or Octavius Caddo, uh, we could possibly think about them as well here. Sure. You know, uh, Bud Fowler was uh, a really talented ball player. He was the first uh, African-American in organized baseball. And um, I know that John Thorne's really high on him. Uh, was our look legend as well. Yes, yes. Uh, what, 308 career average in the minors. Um, had the ton of speed. Uh, bounced around like most uh, African-American baseball players at that time. He'd kind of last a year until uh, one of the players became disgruntled or... or uh, uh, the owner started to question having an African-American on the roster and that he would bounce around from team to team. So he played from 1878 to 1895. And um, yeah, I think probably a conversation, um, you know, maybe I'm not the right person to talk about his candidacy, but he's, you know, he's a pioneer, right? And, uh, you know, and he was a very good baseball player. And I think that's somebody that should be considered. Um, Cotto was, uh, <laughs> talk about really, really interesting human being and an interesting American, right? And the guy who probably should be in the great American Hall of Fame more so than the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was uh, uh, African-American, uh, really civil rights leader in the 1860s in Philadelphia. Um, also happened to be a very good uh, cricket and baseball player. And he was one of the co-founders of the Pythians, which was an all-Black a baseball team that really uh, aspired to play against the best teams and uh, was repeatedly uh, denied and they wanted to play against white teams. They eventually were able to secure a game against the Olympics of Philadelphia and they lost, uh, you know, but that's not the point. They, um, they were uh, a groundbreaking uh, team and Octavius was part of that and Unfortunately, uh, he was, uh, I believe, murdered in 1871. Uh, it was election season. And, you know, you talk about gerrymandering and stuff today. Well, back then they would, you know, physically intimidate and beat uh, uh, African-Americans to keep them away from the polls, from exercising their vote. And uh, uh, Octavius was uh, shot and killed. Uh, at a very young age, um, just simply trying to exercise his right as an American and as a as a man. So I don't know, man. I, he belongs in the like the American, <laughs> the really interesting and, and heroic American Hall of Fame. I don't know if baseball, you know, maybe I don't know. It seems like it was a small part of just this amazing story of his life. But yes, yes, that doesn't fit at all. Yep, that's a good right. way to put it. I'm going to have you do the hardest part now that we've gone through all of these names. Can you pick top five? Oh, it's tough, man. I'm literally changing my list right now. Uh, and I want to apologize to, uh, oh boy. I am going to apologize to, uh, to Buck O'Neill because I'm going to leave him off my list, even though he should be in. Okay. I'm going to go with Beckwith, number one. 
Dick Lundy, number two. Uh, let me ask you this, Adam. You know, and again, I'm leaving Dobie Moore and Heavy Johnson and Chino Smith, who we did not talk about off the list, even though I think all three of them were should be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, man. Uh, you know, would you put Dobie Moore on your list? Is it, you, are you considering him eligible? I, I'm considering him eligible because okay. he was on the 2006 list. Yeah, well, there you go. All right, let me change this. Beckwith, Lundy, Dobie Moore, Candy, Jim Taylor, and Tubby Scales. Excellent. That's my list. And it, it'll be different tomorrow if you ask me again. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't even know what I would pick. We have just in this piece of paper, I've been writing them down now. I think there's 15. So this just kind of goes to show how many incredible candidates are still out there and what's at stake in this election and how many of these amazing candidates are up for only 10 spots. And it makes me afraid that we're going to struggle to get anybody inducted because, of course, the votes get split when there's all these great candidates and, and you run the risk of nobody getting in. Yes, which would be a, a disaster again if that happens. Yes. <sighs> wow. Well, we did it, buddy. We did. I, I have to say thank you so much for taking this incredible amount of time. It was so enlightening to, to talk with you about all of these players because I only know them from, you know, kind of combing through their stats and reading as much as I can the last couple of years. But but you've got this this wealth of knowledge about them. And, and thank you for sharing that with with me and everyone else. Hey, thanks, guys. Hey, thanks, Adam. Take care, man. Have a good one. You as well. Thanks. Well, thanks again to Scott for that. I that was amazing. I learned so much. And Scott is just this incredible wealth of knowledge when it comes to Negro League history. And I'm so glad I was able to get him on for this. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think it helped me uh, cut my list down any. We have so many incredible candidates from the Negro Leagues uh, that I'm not even sure what my five would be. Now, I do want to mention uh, uh, that Scott mentioned Chino Smith at the end there. Uh, I hadn't included uh, Charlie Chino Smith because he had an incredibly short career, but man, the career that this guy had was rather incredible. We have four seasons for him on the, the baseball reference site. Um, the last season of which, 1929 and 69 game, sorry, 66 games, he led the league with 86 runs, 29 doubles, 22 home runs, 451 batting average, 551 OBP, 870 slugging, 1421 OPS, 242 OPS plus, 214 total bases. All of those led the league. Over the four seasons we have, literally, we have 162 games, so it's very easy to, to calculate his per 162 game numbers. 162 games, 248 hits, 51 doubles, 10 triples, 32 homers, 160 runs batted in, 89 walks, hit 408, 492, 683, 1175 OPS, 197 OPS+. plus. 10.7 war that is again in 162 games just an unbelievable hitter we do have a couple extra seasons uh on the seamheads database with fewer games but uh it does round out his his total to 254 games still 398 485 659 uh, unfortunately he uh died in uh he contracted yellow fever and died very early uh, and that's why his career is so short is he another hall of fame candidate well, we had some trouble with 
with uh, some short careers when evaluating a lot of candidates today, but uh, boy, was Smith just an absolutely uh, ungodly hitter. Uh, so yeah, he's another one that you have to consider. Anyway, thanks so much for taking all of this time uh, listening to this. If you made it this far, our next episode is going to be with Joe Williams. Um, we're going to be talking about some pioneers. Uh, Joe Williams is not Smokey Joe Williams of Negro League fame. He is a Sabre member and the co-chair, uh, along with me, of the Sabre 19th Century Overlooked uh, Baseball Legends Committee. So he's got a lot of knowledge about folks like Doc Adams and Al Reach and and uh, even uh, Jim Creighton and, and, and lots of other uh, pioneers. So I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Fewer statistics to go by, but that's going to lead to some good conversation. So I'll talk to you then. Thank you. Thank you.